and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Recluse, aka Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit Blog and author of a special relationship, Trump Epstein and the Secret History of the Anglo American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, I'm out of works at the farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. All right, today's guest, who is rapidly becoming a regular on the farm, he is making his triumphant return. He is an independent uh, UK-based avid podcast listener who goes by Senate. Thank you very much for joining us again this evening, sir. Hey, nice to be here. Absolutely. All right, guys, as you may have discerned with Senate here, this is a continuation of the Farm Storied Wackle series, but with a twist... We are going to look at the evolution of the old Wackle Network from the end of the Cold War up to current day events. And trust me, folks, it's simply incredible how relevant Wackle's legacy is in 2023. When Keith Allen Dennis and John Brisson and uh, Moss Robinson and I and so many others uh, from the original Wackle crew began the podcast series, we saw it as largely historical undertaking. But as the show that Keith and I did on Abe's assassination this past summer revealed, the old Wackle Network is still around, still a player, but with a new generation of leaders and institutions that have been carrying on the work of the OGs. At the forefront of this revival is another subject as relevant now as ever, private military and intelligence companies. One of the contentions we shall make with this series is that modern-day PMCs and PICs have effectively taken up the role, by and large, of Wackle and like bodies. Whereas during the Cold War, Wackle served as a middle ground between Western elites from the conservative establishment and the neoliberal order, alike to arrange things with a motley crew of international drug and arms traffickers, aging Nazi war criminals, and the next generation of black terrorists and religious fanatics and cultists of all stripes. It was an incredible milieu, but uh, both sides were still largely existing today. But increasingly, the private military companies and the private intelligence companies are where they're doing business on any number of levels. At the center of it all was the most enigmatic of PMCs for years. It was an allegedly Russian-controlled PMC called Far West Limited. But it was so much more than that, as we have already discovered over the course of this series. It was, in fact, the driving force potentially behind the present war in Ukraine and also how Joe Biden ended up in the White House. 
And seriously, I truly wish I was exaggerating with that claim, but up to this point, we have seen some very compelling evidence of its influence and power across the globe. We've explored the circumstances that spawned the PMC, its origin stories, the people who founded it, and especially its links to similar outfits in apartheid South Africa, its role in the great Ruble scandal, the Moscow apartment bombings, 9-11 Project Hammer, and even its shocking links to the smuggling of nuclear and biological weapons. Among other things, this raises the disturbing prospect that the current wave of U.S.-sponsored biolabs turning up around the world uh, is related to the activities that Far West was engaged in, especially given the central role Far West had in trafficking arms and other potential contraband from Ukraine to Af Africa by the end of the knots, and specifically the Sudan. Uh, this also brought brings us into Ukraine and its extens and the extensive presence that Far West had and probably still has in that nation. So now we're really starting to get into the juicy bits and how it plays into current day events. Before we get going, I just want to say one more time that this series is dedicated to the memory of Ed Kaufman, alias Don Diligent, who was really the heart and soul of the original Waggle series as a Mooney defector and a one who had had access to fairly senior members. He brought a unique and just incredible uh, perspective to all of that material. He is sadly missed, but more so as a friend than anything else by all of us who were involved in that original Waggle series. And it is my hope that this will do him proud because as great of a researcher as Ed was, he was an even better man. And on that note, let us start the show. Okay, there are a few things I need to unpack before we really start delving into Ukraine proper, because there always are, right? We're going to start off by taking a very broad geopolitical view of events in Eurasia and gradually work our way down to how micro events have triggered the current apocalyptic state of affairs the world has currently consigned itself to. So with that in mind, let us get back to Eurasia here. For 
The last several centuries, world trade has largely centered on the Atlantic and favored nations within this sphere, most notably the United States and Western Europe. But in many ways, this is a historic anomaly. For much of recorded history, the heart of international trade stretched across the Eurasian heartlands. It was known as the Silk Route or the Silk Road. The staggering technological advances made in the West during the Industrial Revolution temporarily altered this state of affairs. But with more innovation drifting back towards Asia and the whole of Eurasia beset by rising economic powers, i.e. China, Russia, India, etc., the pendulum will inevitably swing back that way. For the Atlanticist-centric Anglo-American establishment, this is a disaster in the making. After centuries of dominating international trade, they potentially will find themselves on the outside looking in if China and company succeed with their efforts to provide the Silk Road via the Belt and Road Initiative. So, what is to be done? Well, the same thing the Anglo-American elites always do. Cause instability to balance the powers in Eurasia, making them more malleable to Western interests. Kick up the shit, in other words. And how would this be managed? Simple. By destroying the most important nation in Eurasia. And who would that be? Well, surprising as it may seem, it's Russia. I know Russia... And I know Russia as the most important agent in the region flies in the face of conventional wisdom on this topic. While it never quite became the powerhouse many were expecting, the European Union is still wealthy and possesses any number of technological and economical advances. And then there's China, widely projected to be the most powerful nation in the world by centuries end. Hell, even India has paused for a major blossoming. They've made tremendous strides in tech and other cutting-edge industries in recent years. Russia, by contrast, was already facing a lot of issues prior to the conflict with Ukraine. At the forefront was an aging population and an economy still almost wholly dependent on oil sales to sustain it. Surely, the EU, China, and India have a brighter future, right? Well, in many ways, yeah. But there's something crucial, nay, indispensable to modern economies that the EU, China, and India all lack. Dependable sources of energy, especially oil. And without that, the economies of all three nations, to say nothing of their social stability, will always hang in the balance. Russia does not have this problem. It is one of the world's largest energy producers, and the cheap oil it's offered up to the global economy since the end of the Cold War fueled the massive economic boom in Eurasia from the EU to China for nearly 30 years. But it's not just the fact that Russia is flush with oil. It's also centrally located in Eurasia, giving it access to virtually every major pipeline running through the region. 
This means that if, say, the EU purchases oil from one of these Central Asian stand countries hostile to Moscow, they almost still flow through the Russian Federation. Hence, Russia can influence energy policy even without its own oil via the pipelines in Eurasia. So Russia is sitting on all of these oil reserves and it controls the pipelines distributing oil across the uh, continent. And the nation is surrounded by its still formidable nuclear arsenal. What it amounts to is Russia will continue to play a crucial role in Eurasia and the broader geopolitical order so long as it remains in its current form. For Eurasia to continue to grow, it needs both Russian oil and its pipelines. And there's only so much coercion that can be brought against Russia as its nukes render a direct invasion a long shot. Well, at least it historically has been a long shot. We might uh, no longer abide by the conventional wisdom of how disastrous that would be on so many levels. But I digress. Anyway, the West realized this long ago, i.e. the significance of Russia in this region. Hence, our ongoing obsession with breaking the Russian Federation down to smaller and smaller nation states, just like we had already done with the Soviet Union. So long as Russia exists in its current form, it will hold the proverbial keys to Eurasia for the foreseeable future. Without the ability to threaten military intervention, the West happened upon a novel strategy. Thoroughly corrupt the Russian state so the key officials could be bought off. This is something we explored at length in the first installment and also in, I believe, the third and fourth one that Ed and I did relating to the Great Rubel scandal. Uh, and also part five, really about all of them, honestly. <laughs> Uh, but to briefly recap, efforts to keep pace with America's military spending had largely bankrupted the USSR by the late 1970s. Both the West and the KGB knew this. The KGB knew that Russia needed access to Western capital markets and new streams of income as well. And the black market, and especially the lucrative trade in arms, drugs, and human trafficking was the best option available to them. But beyond this, Western practices of offshoring would enable the KGB and crucial Soviet officials to land on their proverbial feet once the Soviet Union's inevitable collapse occurred. The West was well aware of all this and what was going on, and they were happy to allow the Soviet security services to leap headfirst into organized crime. Good old Captain Bob, Robert Maxwell himself, was at the forefront of these efforts. In this fashion, the West could gain access and maintain leverage over corrupt policymakers, Russia and the former Eastern Bloc countries. By the mid-1990s, the West had to be feeling pretty good about this decision. The rise of Boris Yeltsin and the so-called family crime syndicate behind him opened the floodgates for Western intervention into the economy, 
The Soviet Union had already collapsed by then. Wasting no time, the U.S. targeted the new sovereign Eastern Bloc countries for membership in NATO. This both furthered efforts to break down Russian territory and influence, as well as beginning the process of militarily encircling the newly minted Russian Federation. DeclassifiedUK.org just released a series of documents that provide insight into the wholesale corruption of Yeltsin's regime. As late as 1993, the Russian president was already signaling that he would not oppose NATO expansion to America and European officials. He would continue to support this process throughout his administration, even as he publicly opposed such moves in Russia proper. The U.S. and EU offered to assist Yeltsin in strengthening domestic support for NATO expansion, even. In 1997, they went so far as issuing the Founding Act, quote-unquote, on Yeltsin's behalf. This document was supposedly to serve as the basis for closer cooperation between the Russian Federation and NATO. It's interesting to note that, despite Yeltsin's willingness to expand NATO, there were certain red lines even he wouldn't cross. One involved Ukraine and the Balkans which the Russians insisted should not be allowed into NATO. Yeltsin also requested that Russia be granted, quote, wide-ranging joint decision-making in NATO. And finally, he requested the Founding Act be made legally binding. NATO refused all of these requests, but Yeltsin signed the silly thing anyway. Basically, it was a PR exercise to convince the Russian public that they were partnering with NATO when this was not the case at all. Whether Yeltsin was complicit, naive, drunk, or a combination of all three is unknown. But NATO's promises in this case literally were not worth the paper they were printed on. So, Yeltsin is forced out of office around 1999 and picks Putin to succeed him. Initially, it seems like the status quo will be maintained. This was symbolized by the retention of two key members of Yeltsin's family in Putin's administration. The first was Mikhail Kajinova, who served as Russia's minister of finance when Putin came to power. Once Putin won the election in 2000 proper, Kejnova was bumped up to prime minister. Kejnova initiated some major changes to Russia's economy during the four years he held the post. Among other things, he imposed a flat tax of 13% on the whole country and began a process of rapid privatization of farmlands. He also started negotiating, negotiating with Western oil majors, which eventually became a major issue. But more on that in a moment. For now, I'd like to emphasize the close working relationship Kajnova and the faction and this faction of the Russian government he represented had with the Bush II administration during the early knots. So once again, I'm going to turn to Putin's people. 
how the KGB took back Russia and then took on the West by Catherine Belton. Quite a fitting work to source throughout this because one of her uh, sources was a member of Far West Limited. That would be Surkov, uh, Anton Surkov, a guy that we'll probably be hearing a bit about in this episode and already we've spoken a lot about before. Anyway, this is uh, coming from page 253. There's a quote here. Well, we're going to start in 252 and then get into 253 here. So, <clears throat> quote, Kajinovov's government had led the liberal-seeming economic reforms of Putin's first term. The income tax cut to a flat rate of 13% and the ambitious land reforms, uh, the finally allowing privatization. As prime minister, he'd also spearheaded the talks with Exxon's Lee Raymond over the potential sale of Yokos Spivneft to Exxon Mobile. In those days, he said, we lived in friendship with the U.S. There was great relations with Bush and with Vice President Cheney. I was speaking with Cheney all the time about energy assets. We had great cooperation after the tragedy of September 11th and over transit into Afghanistan. We had cooper cooperation channel between the two governments. If there had been an exchange of assets between Yokos and ExxonMobil, the entire energy sector would have been different. It would have been much more liberal. But by 2003, frequent clashes began to break out between Kejnova and Putin's KGB men. In the beginning, the conflicts had centered around Gazprom. Putin had installed his own man, Alexei Miller, at the helm of the state gas giant and was starting to use it as a way to flex the Kremlin's muscles and exert control over the former Soviet states, which Russia liked to possessively call its near abroad. Under Putin's order, Gazprom was becoming much tougher about payment for its gas supplies to Belarus and Ukraine as the Kremlin sought to force the former Soviet republics to toe the line. Kejnova, however, had been pursuing a reform of Gazprom that would have put and pushed by, for by his liberals in government ever since the Yeltsin years to liberalize the gas market and break Gazprom up into production and transportation units, splitting its gas production companies from its pipeline network. This had long been seen as a reform vital to boosting competition in the economy. But now that Putin's men were cementing their grip, it was pushed off the agenda indefinitely. At the very moment Kejnova had believed he was about to announce the momentous reform. That September, the press had gathered for a cabinet meeting at which the gas reform was the first item on the agenda when Kejnova received a call from Putin. He told me, quote, I insist you remove this item from the agenda, Kejnova recalled. We've been so close. We were even ahead of Europe on this. We were ready. But Putin called me just a minute before. So these comments are very illustrative on a lot of levels. But the listener will recall that Halliburton was supposedly Far West principal American backer. And Dick Cheney was working closely with the company during the 1990s prior to his return to government. 
The comment about transportation arrangements in Afghanistan is also compelling. The listener will recall Far West was supposedly assisting American forces with logistics at the Bagram airfield during the early knots. This assistance was probably related to drug trafficking. Again, Bagram was a former Soviet airbase before we took over, so I suspect that that is a very likely candidate for what Kejnaval was talking about when he got into the cooperation in Afghanistan. All right, so we're on even firmer footing with the next Yeltsin family man retained in Putin's administration in terms of Far West. And that would be the president's former chief of state, Alexander Voloshin. Voloshin had the same post in Putin's administration until 2003. According to investigative journalist Sean Tina, Far West co-founder Anton Surikov brought Voloshin with him to the infamous 1990 meeting at Khashoggi's villa. Also present at the meeting was the Chechen rebel leader, uh, Shamil Basiyan. This is, of course, unfolding against the backdrop of the Second Chechen War, which was, again, instrumental in Putin solidifying his hold on the presidency. So other accounts hold that this well, there was also a separate meeting uh, that occurred along the Ivy Coast in August 1999, just as the Second Chechen War was starting. Voloshin was also reputedly present at the July 4th meeting involving Far West figures as well. Regardless, what it amounts to is this. Yeltsin's people are still in key posts, and the oligarchs closest to the former president are still dominating the economy. So, what happened? Well, Putin seems to have gotten ambitious. Let's get back to Russia's dealings with Western oil companies during this time. One of the Russian companies most closely connected to Far West was the Alpha Group, which owns the Alpha Bank and a host of other interests. This is the same bank that was uh, tied into the, you know, the Trump uh, Russian patsy, Russia Gate stuff early on. It was later proven to be frivolous. But I seriously doubt that it was at all a coincidence that the Alpha Bank came up in those allegations and reports that it was operating out of Trump Tower. Okay. So anyway, um, another company of interest here was an oil one known as Timon Oil Company, or TNK. During this time, senior alpha figures negotiated a contract with British Petroleum in which the British company would take a 50% stake in TNK. This move was highly significant because it effectively allowed a foreign company and by default a nation to own a strategically important Russian company. The pro-West wing of Putin's administration wanted to continue this trend. Basically, they believed by selling off controlling interests in Russian companies to Western business uh, men and corporations, they would further Russia's integration into the global economy. So the next company targeted for this venture was another oil one, Yokos. 
significantly raise the stakes. Thanks to Gazprom, this was Russia's largest oil company at the time. But beyond that, it owned the bulk of Russia's oil reserves. And now, Prime Minister Mikhail Kajnavov had opened up negotiations with Exxon to purchase a controlling stake in this. So, Putin had other ideals. He envisioned Yokos acquiring a significant, if not controlling, stake in a U.S. oil major in exchange for a significant share of the company the company was under discussion to be sold to Exxon. Putin saw this exchange of shares in an, as an energy bridge between the U.S. and Russia. Basically, both countries would enjoy significant stakes in one of the oil majors that the other owned, ensuring that their respective energy policies would be in harmony with one another. It was also effectively uh, given... Russia and the U.S. the ability to manage China's rise with the world's two largest energy producers in a effectively de facto partnership. To Putin and his inner circle, seemed like the ideal path going forward for both nations. But the Americans wanted no part of it. Exxon informed Putin that not only would Russia be barred from acquiring a stake in a U.S. oil major, but that Exxon expected the Russians to eventually sell them a controlling interest in Yokos. Basically, the Russians were expected to turn over control of one of their biggest oil companies to the West for little more than promises of greater integration into the global economy. And again, this was also the company that controlled Russia's oil reserves. So they're not just giving a big stake in a major company. They're also potentially opening up ownership by a foreign power to their freaking oil reserves. Needless to say, Exxon's position did not go over well. Voloshin was booted out of the administration in late 2003, and Mikhail Kajnaval soon joined him in early 2004. Already, Yokos had been slapped with a tax bill and the billions that it could not pay. By 2004, Russia began seizing its assets and transferring them to other country companies, most notably Gazprom. Westerners took a hit on this as well, including good old Jacob Rothschild, whose shares were seized. And yes, he was a member of those Rothschilds, that particular family. Generally, this is held as the moment that gangster that the gangsterism of Putin's Russia asserted itself. But this is a problematic claim, to put it mildly. Putin's insistence on Russian control of its oil is totally in keeping with how the U.S. has dealt with China. To this day, I don't believe foreigners can even hold a majority stake in a significant China uh, company. They might have changed the law, but if they did, it was only in the last couple of years. Russia had already done far more to open up their economy to Western finance than China, frankly, has done to this present day. 
Putin seems to have basically just been looking for the same kind of business relations with the West with what we had offered China. Junior, if not full partnership, in other words. Exxon's refusal of an equal partnership appears to mark the beginning of the inevitable showdown between Putin's Russia and the West. Up to this point in time, relations between Putin and the U.S. had been cordial. In 2004, Zbigniew Brzezinski became the first major American figure to openly link Putin to fascism when he compared the Russian president to Mussolini. Zbig was, of course, Jimmy Carter's former national security advisor. He was the guy who really pushed for turning the Russian-Afghan war into Russia's Vietnam. But he was also a founding member of the Victims of for Communism Memorial Foundation. This grew out of the Captive Nations Movement, which was a major component of the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations and the World Anti-Communist League. Another co-founder with Zbig was Lev Dobryansky. For decades, a major figure in the ABN and WACL. And possibly the Ukrainian OUNB's key link man to the U.S. security services. His daughter, Paula Dobryansky, was a signer of the Project for a New American Century and is still a major figure in the Victims for Communism Memorial Foundation. But even before then, intrigues were already in play. The pro-U.S. oligarch who owned Yoko circa 2003 was publicly meeting with figures like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett during this time. As Putin began seizing Yoko's assets, John McCain and George Soros demanded Russia's expulsion from the G8. Soros may have already been doing more than acting Russia, uh, again, just acting and putting allegations against Russia in the press at this point. But before getting to that, a word must be said about what is commonly referred to as quote-unquote color revolutions. So the main visionary behind this style of a re regime change was a political scientist named Gene Sharp. His 1993 work, From Dictatorship to Democracy, has served as the blueprint for a variety of quote-unquote nonviolent uprisings since its publication, most notably in the former Soviet states, but more recently the Arab Springs and even Occupy Wall Street. Sharp has been pushing these concepts for years now, but things really started to pick up around that glorious year of 1983. It was during that time that Sharp, with support from Harvard's Center for International Affairs, which Henry Kissinger was a long way to, uh, that Sharp founded his own non-government organization, which was known as the Albert Einstein Institute. Its purpose was to study methods of nonviolent resistance. Coincidentally, it was also during this year the Reagan administration created the National Endowment for Democracy, or the NED. Now, the NED is one of three major institutions commonly accused by Russia, China, and so forth for fermenting uprisings. 
The other two are much more well-known. One is, of course, the Open Society Foundation of George Soros, and the other is Freedom House. Freedom House was co-founded by Eleanor Roosevelt around 1941. While it's always had some murky dealings, it seems it was repurposed around 2000-2001 to engage in these kinds of activities, i.e. these color revolutions. The turning point really seems to have coincided when former CIA director James Woolsey, turns up in practically everything, <laughs> uh, became the chairman of the board this time around. Woolsey, interestingly enough, was one of the few major CIA figures to back Trump in the early years, uh, though they he backed out of uh, support of the administration pretty early in the game, though. Uh, but anyway, it was the NED, the Albert Einstein Institute, and other groups inspired by Gene Sharp, such as the International Center for Nonviolent Conflict, that developed the modus operandi of the soft coup. The latter group is especially interesting. This would be the International Center for Nonviolent Conflict, that is to say. It was co-founded by a guy called Peter Ackerman. Ackerman was a big financial sponsor of Sharps for years, and he later became the chairman of, Free of the Freedom House board around 2005. I believe this was right after Woolsey left. Ackerman had been a former student of Sharps at Tufts University. After graduating, he amassed a personal fortune during the 1980s while he was working for a little firm called Drexel Burnham and Lambert. This was the infamous bank that employed the junk bond king, Michael Milken. Ackerman worked closely with Milken, who had a lot of fascinating people in his inner circle. Also at Drexel during this time was Leon Black, the future founder of Apollo Global and a big Trump backer. He also ended up owning the PMC, formerly known as Blackwater, through Apollo Capital as well. Interesting side note on that. Uh, there's a bunch of other collaborators and fellow tra travelers in this network, such as the hardline Brexit figure Sir James Goldsmith. Jeffrey Epstein was in this group. Roy Cohn, Donald Trump's longtime attorney and uh, political mentor. Trump himself. In fact, it was Trump who pardoned Milken. Okay, Milken. So it's important to emphasize here the legacy of these color revolutions belongs to the Reagan administration and this close click around Drexel Burnham Lambert as much as anybody. And fittingly, the first time Sharp's methods appear to have uh, been used occurred during the Bush 1 administration. At a minimum, Ackerman and other figures connected to Sharp were studying Tiananmen Square in 1989. Another 1989 uprising, the so-called Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia, featured the same figures linked to Sharp. Uh, it wasn't until 2000 that this network really hit its stride, however. This was a year that the Sharp-inspired Edper movement in Serbia managed to overthrow Slavodin Milosevic. This subsequently became the blueprint for all of the following color revolutions during the forthcoming decade. That would be the Knots. Many of the figures behind Edper 
founded another sharp inspired NGO, the Center for Applied Nonviolent Action Strategies, which was used to train political cadres the world over in Sharp's methods. I'd recommend the film How to Start a Revolution as a good starting point into exploring this network. But keep in mind, it, it's also a propaganda piece. It was actually designed for activists in Occupy Wall Street, which is really interesting in light of how many of them turn up in woke and all right circles years later. But I digress. So things really started to take off once Bush II administration came to power. During the early knots, Putin began negotiations for what eventually became the Eurasian Economic Union. It was originally envisioned as consisting of Russia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, and Ukraine. During 2001, the first post-Serbian color revolution was attempted, this one in Belarus. The stakes rose dramatically when the uh, Rose Revolution broke out in Georgia in 2003. It broke out in November of that year, just as the situation with Yokos was blowing up. Remember the Yeltsin crony Volushin was dismissed as Putin's chief of staff roughly at the same time the Rose Revolution was wrapping up. It brought Columbia-educated, pro-West Mikhail Sakovishvili, I believe, <laughs> to power. Actually, it would be more accurate to call Sakovishvili an American stooge or puppet. Uh, the phrase Manchurian candidate doesn't apply here because there's never really been a mystery as to who pulls these strains. Sakovili uh, will continue to turn up in this saga. After he was run out of Georgia in 2013, he ended up in Ukraine, where he was used to shore up the pro-U.S. regime there. But more on that later. So this was a major concern for Putin. Georgia was angling for NATO membership right in Russia's backyard. Just how serious the earlier color revolution in Belarus was was debatable. But this most recent one was serious, and it only became more so the following year with the Orange Revolution. Now, before getting to that, I want to briefly address the situation in Ukraine at the time. Basically, it was dire. We've already been alluding to this, but by the early knots, Ukraine was arguably the most corrupt and gangster-fied region in the entire part of the world. The oligarchs were, who wielded power were vastly beyond what they uh, had in Russia in terms of their counterpart and their influence during Yeltsin years. And that's saying something. The proverbial boss of bosses was none other than the Ukrainian president, Leonid Kuchma. So I'm going to give you guys a bit about Kuchma and his administration to put some perspective in here. All right, so I am going to quote here from another book that I've used quite extensively in this. That would be Mick Mafia, Journey Through the Global Criminal Underworld by Misha Glini. So again, another really excellent one here. This is from pages 83 through 84. Uh, so according to the MP who heads the Preliminary Investigative Committee into Organized Crime and Corruption, Ukraine's chief capo was none other than the president himself, Leonard Kuchmia. 
a former boss of the Yuzhma Missile Factory in the industrial city of Dnipropetrovsk, Kuchma, was known as a leading red director, that is, a communist who actually worked for a living as opposed to those who just made their way up the party's greasy pole. Western embassies in Kiev hoped that Kuchma's relative use and energy would drag Ukraine out of the torpor characterized by the first post-communist president, Leonid Kravchuk, who was indeed a Communist Party boss from central casting. Like many others, the Western embassies were very wrong. It was a period in which the state was converted into a criminal political mafia, said Anakoshkov, the combative and impressively mustached MP. The political system and the state institutions under Kuchma's control in order to secure absolute power and authoritarian regime that could exploit its power for the boundless enrichment of Kuchma's family and those oligarchs closest to him. To achieve these goals, he and his closest circle didn't shy from using any method, including the dirtiest ones, even physical assault of the most violent kind. Like most other Ukrainians, Tereshavov's local coroner was fully aware of the lawless nature of the state that he lived in, so it took considerable courage to defy the orders he received from Kiev, but he did it. He kept the body when ordered to dispose of it, though without refrigeration it had begun to compose. He, relie he was relieved when some days later a team of journalists picked, pitched up from Kiev to identify the body as Georgie, Gandes, which had disappeared for two months earlier. And this was a big scandal in Ukraine that I'm getting into here, by the way, around the nods. It was really big in Kushma's uh, downfall, actually. But anyway, to continue here with McMafia. The investigative articles by the dead man, a 31-year-old half-Ukrainian, half-Georgian journalist, had begun to pry open the lid on Kuchma's maggot-infested administration. Its members had commanded the judiciary, the police, the military, the security services, and industry. In short, the central mechanisms of state as vital assistance in the amassing of wealth and power by a federation of regionally-based cliques. Of course, just as in any other cabal of families, there were frequent falling outs, and indeed, the system eventually came crashing down in December 2004 when former allies of Kuchnos, Viktor Yushchenko, and Yuli Chesnokhani led the Orange Revolution, which sought to replace the venality with popular legitimacy as the guiding philosophy of the state. But until then, the Ukrainian experience was unprecedented, even in Russia under Yeltsin, when the influence of the oligarchs over the Kremlin was at its height, a certain distance existed between political and economic processes, none to mention personal ambition. But at the turn of the millennium, the oligarchs and government became one in Ukraine, fused together by the animate bonding property of the SBU, the post-independent KGB. But occasionally, even the SBU would slip up and one of the whistleblowers decided to take a chance and shed some light on the Gundes killing. So this led to some additional scandals <clears throat> in Ukraine, to put it mildly. Like I said, this sort of laid the foundation uh, for 
this whole thing with the Orange Revolution. But it's interesting here to get into this guy's death. So one more thing I'm going to read here from McMafia. Kuchma refused to allow a parliamentary inquiry into the tapes affair, but did commission Kroll Inc., the New York risk consulting firm, to undertake an independent investigation into Gundesi's death. That was the journalist I was just alluding to here who died suddenly investigating and corruption and the regime. And once again, good old Kroll was brought in to look at this. And apparently the report that they issued barely even mentioned the Gundes murder, which they were in theory uh, investigating. But it also tried to weigh in on these tape scandals that they were being uh, confronted with. But yes, so again, Kroll, we've already discussed Kroll so much at this. Kroll was hired by Robert Maxwell to protect his assets, which were probably coming out of the Great Ruble scandal. It was hired by the Russian Federation to investigate the rubles that were being looted out of the country for the Great Ruben scandal. It was the head of security at the time of 9-11. It was active in the Project Hammer intrigues in South Africa. I mean, it, it's turned up in pretty much everything we've talked about in here as well. We could almost call this series Kroll and Far West. Uh, maybe uh, we'll give Kroll, though, its own uh, series here at some point. It certainly seems to warrant it. Uh, but anyway, it's a gang back here. This is the early knots. This is the atmosphere that prevailed in Ukraine when Far West was smuggling the nukes out circa 2001. Now, Kuchma is usually depicted as close to Russia, and this is pretty accurate. But much of his reign coincided with that of Boris Yeltsin, who was pro-U.S. and corrupt to the core. Certainly the corruption in both nations during the 1990s was partly driven by the same actors. But again, there was often U.S. complicity in these affairs. And this was even more so with the Ukraine security services. Upon Ukrainian independence in 1991, the U.S. General Nikolaus Krosi, a Ukrainian-American, requested permission from the Pentagon to travel to Ukraine and assist in reorganizing their armed forces. Permission was granted, and Krosi began a major overhaul during the 1990s. This earned him such lofty titles as the Secretary of Defense on Ukrainian Matters and Secretary of Defense Senior Military Representative to Ukraine. Besides reconfiguring the Ukrainian military, he also established an educational exchange program for the officers, which sponsored and escorted both civilian and military groups to the U.S. And of course, he helped identify, quote-unquote, sound leaders within the armed forces of Ukraine. In a sense, Krosi was a kind of shadow secretary of defense in the Ukraine throughout the 1990s. He was born in the Glacia region of Ukraine during 1935. His family relocated to Philadelphia circa 1949. All of this raises the questions of whether Krosi or his family had ties to the OUNB, the notorious proto-fascist Ukrainian organization that served as the backbone of the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations and wackle for decades. The Galicia region was apparently rife with OUN supporters, and 
This is also from which the infamous Nazi-sponsored Galicia division emerged. And Croce belonged to Plast, the Ukrainian youth movement growing up in Pennsylvania. However, Banderdite faction, faction of the OUNB, that's where the B comes from, from Bandera, Stefan Bandera, had denounced the Galician division from the beginning. So while some OUNB figures participated in that division, the ties were not that close. Further, the OUNB had its own youth wing known as the Ukrainian Youth Association. Plast was actually much closer to a rival OUN faction, which is typically referred to as the OUM. This is something I got to say about the Ukrainian organization of Ukrainian nationalists. A lot of people tend to forget, but there were different factions within it. Everybody points to the Banderites, but they did not have universal control over the organization of Ukrainian nationalists. And the other big uh, faction in it was the OUM. This, uh, the M, it came for the faction's founder, Andrea Milnik, I believe. The OUN was also more closely linked to the Glacian Division as well. And finally, there's Philadelphia, which has the second largest Ukrainian-American community in the country. The Ukrainians from this region appear to have been closer to the OUM as well. So... While it's extremely probable Croce's family had links to the OUN, it was probably the M rather than the B factions. And despite the Nazi era collaboration, the OUM, they were generally regarded as the more moderate of the two organizations. Still, this marked the beginning of what became a pipeline of Ukrainian Americans, many linked to the OUN into the post-Soviet government of Ukraine. But it was after the Orange Revolution brought Viktor Yushchenko to power, this pipeline went into overdrive in conjunction with a massive rehabilitation of the OUN and especially the Banderite faction during his administration. But before getting to that, we need to talk some Orange Revolution.
So on that note, I'm finally going to turn the mic over to Senate so he can give you guys a rundown of the Far West role in said revolution. So Senate, what have you got for us, sir? So a lot of the stuff that you've touched on, like the National Democratic Institute, the NED, Freedom House, um, and gene shops techniques, uh, a lot of these were all employed like throughout the orange revolution uh and you can see the connections uh from there uh, across so <clears throat> what's uh interesting is i've got a couple articles here that go into um how everyone was involved and just paint a picture of how this was playing out um or on the night um it, it's kind of interesting as well, like, uh, especially if you think about the media climate now, the fact that a lot of stuff I'm about to read to you was just printed uh, in real mainstream newspapers quite openly. Uh, so it's uh, interesting, like, to see how, like, 24, I mean, 20 years on, the, like, discourse and discussion is much different. You could get away with saying quite a lot back then. Uh, so. Here is just an excerpt from a Guardian article that was put, published uh, in November 2004 about specifically some details about what was going on um, from the U.S. side during the Orange Revolution. Um, so here we go. Um, there are professional outside election monitors from bodies such as the organization for security and cooperation in Europe, but the Ukrainian poll, like its predecessors, also featured thousands of local election monitors trained and paid for by Western groups. Uh, Freedom House and the Democratic Party's uh, National Democratic Institute, the NDI, uh, helped fund and organize the quote here, largest civil regional election monitoring effort in Ukraine involving more than a thousand trained observers. They also organized exit polls uh, on Sunday night. These exit polls gave Mr. Yushchenko an 11 point lead and set the agenda for much of what followed. Um, the exit polls were seen as critical as they seized the initiative in the proper propaganda battle with the regime that that would be uh, Kuchma's regime uh, invariably appearing first receiving wide media coverage and putting the onus on the authorities to respond and uh, further in that article is um, a mention again of uh, Otpor the kind of Serbian youth movement that was mentioned earlier and Mr. Sakashvili from uh, Georgia. So it goes, last year, before becoming president in Georgia, the US educated Mr. Saakashvili traveled to Tbilisi, uh, to, Belgra to Belgrade to be coached in the techniques of mass defiance. In Belarus, the US embassy organized the dispatch of young opposition leaders to the Baltics, where they met with Serbs traveling from Belgrade, in Serbia's case, given the hostile environment in Belgrade, uh, the Americans organized the overthrow from neighboring Hungary. Um, 
In recent weeks, several Serbs travelled to Ukraine. Indeed, one of the leaders from Belgrade, Alexander Marek, was turned away at the border. Um, I think it's important to note here that um, the these movements, so um, Pora, uh, P-O-R-A, was the name of the one in Ukraine, uh, Otspor in Serbia, and uh, there's one here, Kamara, um, from Georgia. These were all kind of um, sibling movements um, that came out of Otspor. They all played major parts in the revolution, um, in the you know their respective revolutions. Um, I think we we didn't go into much detail about what um, Gene Sharp's like techniques were, but it's uh, I think like by now you I mean if you've been watching the news you m- must have you know seen where it's the kind of um, like mass demonstration very public demonstration this organization of civic groups um students open you know open society groups and the these kinds of things uh together and it was a kind of technique push through with all of them um i i think what's interesting though as well there was this big focus on corruption in all of them which and I don't know, at least to me, what seems like, you know, quite vague uh, demands uh, and things like that. Um, None of the groups themselves achieved that much uh, like long term success, I think they would say, except maybe for Ospor because of its kind of fame uh, or or much electoral success, uh, you know, after these revolutions. Um, And just a last point from that article there. Uh, officially, the U.S. government spent forty-one million dollars organizing and funding nineteen ninety-nine. Uh, in Ukraine, the figure was supposed to be about fourteen million dollars. And then, just going on on that, I found uh, another article which goes into a book, Agent Orange: Our Secret Role in Ukraine, which um investigate, which was uh for the Canadian Globe, which kind of looked at the Canadian role in um, in all of this. Uh, and there were some very interesting details from that, which was <clears throat> beginning in January 2004, the Canadian ambassador, Andrew Robinson, uh, quote here, began to organise secret monthly meetings of Western ambassadors presiding over what he called donor coordination sessions among 20 countries interested in seeing Mr. Yushchenko succeed. Uh, Eventually, he acted as the group's spokesman and became a prominent critic of the Kuchma government's heavy-handed media control. Uh, Canada also invested in a controversial exit poll carried out on election day by Ukraine's uh, Razumkov Center and other groups that contradicted the official results that showed Mr. Yanukovych winning. Uh, Canadian officials even got involved in the backroom wrangling over the vote. With the approval of the Prime Minister's office, Liberal MP, Canadian Liberal MP, Boris Reznuski, a Canadian election observer, 
promised the deputy head of Ukraine's Central Elections Commission, Yaroslav Davidovich, and his family safe passage to Canada if they, quote, did the right thing by disputing results showing Yanukovych winning by a mere 2.7 percentage points. Two days after the second round of voting, Robinson and other ambassadors met Yushchenko, who delivered his appeal to the parliaments and nations of the world to bolster the will of the Ukrainian people to support their aspiration to return to, to democracy. According to McKinnon's reporting that day, uh, Rusnuski, whose sister was, quote, close to Yushchenko's wife, told protesters at Maidan Square, it's quite clear to me that Viktor Yushchenko is, in fact, president of Ukraine. Uh, I think it's uh, also important to note here, okay, you know, Canada is a um, big country for Ukrainian emigre, just Britain and the US are. So um, that would kind of explain a bit, a bit of that plays into what I'm about to say now. Here's some more of this. Canada is oh, yeah. part of like the Five Eyes Network as well um, with the US, UK, um, Australia, and I think it's also... New Zealand, though New Zealand's been getting a little reluctant about that alliance in recent years, but yeah, it's um, <clears throat> it's kind of like one of the de facto branches of the Anglo-American Intelligence Network establishment, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, of course, and and uh, we we know in in general, uh, Canada has been quite an active uh, Cold War uh, nation, um, so it's probably nothing new for them. Um, many okay, many of Canada's election observers were far from impartial. In a National Post article before the December 26th election rerun, Matthew Fisher wrote, Western reporters in Ukraine last month were shocked at how openly some Canadian observers cheered for Viktor Yushchenko, the pro-Western opposition leader who the Supreme Court found had been cheated of victory like his passionate supporters those canadians wore orange garb one of them was even alleged to have addressed a big yushchenko rally uh, the journalists felt these people were so over the top in celebrating yushchenko's orange revolution and so loud in condemning the voting process they were an embarrassment to canada uh, ottawa spent over three million dollars to send 500 observers to oversee the election rerun, the largest official delegation from any country. Another 500 were sent by the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, the UCC, who, uh, like many other organizations, has, well, is assumed to be under OUN control, uh, um, after seeking to isolate Kuchma, uh, Ottawa supported Yushchenko's government. Ukraine was selected as one of Canada's 25, 25 priority aid countries. And Ottawa pushed for its adhesion to the World Trade Organization in launching a trade promotion initiative dubbed Canada Days in Ukraine. International Trade Minister... Jim Peterson declared, I think there is incredible potential in that market 
And I believe that the Orange Revolution has given us the opportunity to see that reforms are made in that country and businesses can be more secure in their operations, uh, <laughs> which is uh, quite a, uh, I don't know, I'm very annoyed by that that quote. Um, okay, yeah, and um, so we can see from all of that that there was big embassy effort um from there what's um interesting is in a lot of the stuff we've gone through is that far west we know that in the ukrainian uh kind of intelligence services at that time there were many of the kind of oun or bandera faction people including um some of the members of far west so Filin and Lit Litvin Litvinsev, who were part of the counterintelligence division at that time. So from here, as as for the uh generally in the kind of narrative that goes round about the Orange Revolution, there um is discussion about the role that the SBU played in kind of facilitating the process and stopping it go down i found really only one article about this uh that went into any detail it was published in january 2005 on the new york times um by a reporter cj Sh shivers or shivers who is um i think been quite an important uh, war reporter over the last few years um he's like a pulitzer prize winner but uh i found it kind of interesting that this was the only article so i've got some excerpts here that really um go into detail about the you know just just what the sbu were up to that night um so i'll read and uh we may see some characters we've heard of before pop up um I, I just to add as well it's uh again like very interesting um you know this is an article from 2005 like reading it um you know after having gone through all of this and like you know looking hearing <laughs> just um seeing the words on the page and thinking that th this was like printed in the new york times and everyone was you know okay with it and and that kind of stuff um okay uh so kiev, kiev was tilting toward a t so this is kind of on the night of um uh of i think of the revolution where there was i i'm sure it lasted over time but this is uh kind of of a night where there was about to be a kind of crackdown and this is the end intervention of the sbu and potentially kind of far west so kiev was tilting toward a terrible terrible clash a soviet style crackdown that could have brought civil war and then inside ukraine's clandestine security apparatus strange events began to unfold 
while wet snow fell fell on on the rally in Independence Square, an undercover colonel from the security service of Ukraine of Ukraine S the SBU moved among pro- protesters' tents. He represented the successor to the KGB, but his mission, he said, was not against the protesters. It was to thwart thwart the mobilizers. He warned opposition leaders that a crackdown was afoot. Uh, simultaneously, senior intelligence officials were madly working their secure telephones. In one instance, cooperating with an army general to persuade the interior ministry to turn back. The officials issued warnings saying that using force against peaceful rallies was illegal and could lead to prosecution and that if ministry troops came to Kiev, the army and security services would defend civilians, um, said an opposition leader who witnessed some of the exchanges and uh, Alexander Galaka head of the military in military intelligence service the GUR, gur who made some of the calls uh far behind far behind the scenes um colonel general um ihor p smeshko the sbu chief was coordinating several of the contacts According to Major, according to Major General Vitali Romanchenko, uh, the leader of the military counterintelligence department, who said that on the spy chief's orders, he warned General Popkov, who was about to, you know, basically crack down on these protests with about ten thousand men, to stop. The interior ministry called off its alarm. Uh, here it's interesting. Going forward, I've, I've looked up this Gen- Major General Vitali Romanchenko, um, who's here. He's probably the only person named on here who I couldn't find any information of, any record of anywhere or any appointment. Um, given he's listed here as the leader of the military counterintelligence department, um, something tells me, and and to me, Vitaly Romanchenko sounds sounds like a made up name. Um, I I don't know. Um, I, I, part of me does wonder if this is uh, fit, you know, filling as described in some of the other far west stuff. Um, there are a couple of other, uh, you know, generals who can't be tracked. I assume they, I guess they're intelligence officials, so it's going to be difficult to uh, find stuff. But I think one of Philan's aliases that he used was Roman something. I, I do seem to recall that, or at least one of them used that uh, Roman as an alias for their first name. Yeah, when when I read this, um, immediately as the second I saw that name, that 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 it made me think of him because I've you know looked up a lot of that so smeshko galaka like these guys you know you can find stuff about them and things listed but um this you found nothing um so yeah um the continuing on so other activities of the sbu around this time 
So the officers were funneling information to Mr. Kuchma's rivals, um, providing security to opposition figures and demonstrators. They also sent choreographed public signals about their unwillingness to follow the administration's path and engaged in a psychological tug of war with state officials to soften responses to protests. Ultimately, the intelligence agencies worked, usually in secret, sometimes in public, at times illegally, to block the fraudulent ascension of Mr. Yanukovych, whom several of the generals loathed, directly and indirectly. Their work supported Viktor Yushchenko, the Western-orientated candidate, who is now the president-elect. The support did not start with the protests. Long before the election, the um, Siloviki, so security people, uh, like the Russian word, and the opposition opened quiet lines of communication, including General Smeshko's assignment last summer um, of an SBU general as a secret liaison to Yushchenko's campaign. Uh, more here. The 38,000-member SBU is, um, has been sullied by its reputation for blackmail, arms trading, and links to the Russian security services and organized crime. It remains highly factionalized. Its previous chairman, Leonid Dekrak, uh, was fired under international pressure after being accused of organizing the sale of radar systems to embargoed Iraq. Um, Mr. Kuchma appointed General Smeshko, a generally Western-orientated official and career military intelligence officer, to the SBU chairman in 2003. He'd previously been posted to embassies in Washington and Zurich, Um and the move was regarded as an effort to smooth relations with the West. Um, many of the security men who worked against the fraudulent election and resisted the crack, the crackdown are part of General Smeshko's military intelligence circle and had spent had spent set had spent parts of their careers working in western countries as working in western countries or as liaisons to western governments their unease with mr yanukovych's candid candidacy deepened on november 21st when early results indicated the premier was winning the election but through widespread fraud, uh, I've I've not looked at the evidence of the fraud. We'll we'll see though. There there is some stuff coming up. Uh, the SBU's leadership met in General Smeshko's office. Among those present were General Romanchenko, uh, a General Driskani, uh, Major General Alec uh, Alexander. Sarnatsky, uh, chief of the SBU cabinet, and Colonel Valery Kondratyuk, 
uh, who was chief chief liaison to foreign intelligence services. The okay, um, the group contemplated a public resignation, but decided to try and steer the gathering forces away from a away from a clash and to fight within. On November the 24th, when the election commission met to certify Mr. Yanukovych's nominal win, Kiev was so fully blockaded that Mr. Kuchma was unable to work in his office. Uh, he called for a meeting outside of the city where his government celebrated its win and several politicians declared that if that if crowds continued to block the government, troops should disperse them. Uh, three people in the meeting said. Um, and then as the election commission deliberate, deliberated over, uh, as the election commission deliberated over Mr. Yanukovych's victory, uh, you, Ukrainska Pravda, so Ukrainian Pravda, a news website posted transcripts of conversations from among members of the Yanukovych campaign. These officials were discussing plans to rig the election, including padding the vote. One conversation recorded on election night was between Yuri Levinets, a campaign manager, a man identified as Valeri, um, and here's a quote from the conversation. Uh, Valeri, we have negative results. Mr. Levinets, what do you mean? Uh, Valeri, 48.37 for opposition, 47.64 for us. Valeri later added, we have agreed to a 3 to 3.5% difference in our favour. We are preparing a table. You will have it by fax. <laughs> Mr. Yanukovych won by 2.9% uh, in, in, an, in an interview. Um, Mr. Rubachuk, who was um, chief of staff for Yushchenko, said he gave the transcripts to Pravda after reading them, after receiving them from the SBU, um, SBU which had bugged the Yanukovych campaign. General Smeshko refused to discuss the tapes in detail. Officially, the SBU had nothing to do with the surveillance of the Yanukovych campaign officials. He said, such a taping would be illegal in this country without permission from the court. I will say nothing more. Um, but another security service member who spoke on condition of anonymity because the taping was illegal acknowledged the surveillance but said it was too delicate for general smeshko to confirm those who quote from him those who did this they did not intend to become heroes the officer said they only wanted to prevent a falsified election um not long after pravda posted the transcript 
Smeshko left the meeting with Kuchma and headed to an FBU safe house in Kiev for a secret liaison with Mr. Yushchenko. The meeting had self-evident ironies. Mr. Yushchenko, nearly incapacitated after being poisoned by dioxin in the summer, a crime that remains unsolved, had publicly linked the poisoning to a meeting with General Smeshko and another SBU general. Now he wanted another talk. The group met in a tiny room behind a drawn yellow curtain and ate fruit. Present were General Sarnatsky, General Smeshko, and General Romanchenko, as well as Mr. Yushchenko, Mr. Ribachuk, and another Yushchenko ally. Two agreements were struck, both sides claim. Mr. Yushchenko requested more security for his campaign, and General Smeshko agreed to provide him with eight specialists from the Elite Alpha Counterterrorism Unit, a highly unusual step, and to arrange for former SBU members to guard the campaign. Back, uh, and then a bit further on in the article, um, this was quite an interesting bit. Um, Back at the SBU headquarters, uh, General Smeshko decided... Uh, to send a signal to the public that they would send officers to to read a statement to to the protesters. Um, Mr. Yushchenko appeared the next night, November the 25th, with five members of the SVU. Their statement was indirect, but clearly pro-opposition. Pro it said concerns about the election were valid, and address and address the Supreme Court, which had just announced it would review complaints of electoral electoral fraud. Fraud. The officers urged the judges to work objectively. They then addressed police officers and soldiers. Do not forget that you are called to serve the people. Their statement said, "The SBU considers its main assignment is to protect the people." No matter the source of the threat, be with us. It was a rare moment for officers used to anonymity and reflected how deeply opposition sentiments had reached into Ukrainian society. In interviews, uh, <laughs> in interviews, two officers from the stage, uh, Lieutenant General Alexander. Skibinetsky, a reservist, and Lieutenant General Alexander Skipalski, who's retired, were asked if their families influenced their decisions. Both of our wives were in the square, General Skib Skibinetsky said. Uh, General Skipalski said, my wife and my daughter too. Um, the signal seemed to have had its desired effect. The next morning, the cadets from the Interior Ministry's Academy joined the opposition, marching to the barricades to try and persuade the officers on duty to join them. A few carried flowers. Um, and then carrying on. 
The state was leaking power. The next day, November 27th, Mr. Kuchma summoned General Smeshko to a meeting at uh, Concha Zaspa, a government sanitarium out, outside of Kiev. In a conference room where Mr. Yanukovych and politicians from eastern regions supporting him, with the leader of the interior minister, or the M MBD, uh, Mikola Bilokon, one of one of Kuchma's loyalists, who made no secret of his support for the premier. <clears throat> Mr. Yanukovych confronted Mr. Kuchma, asking if he was betraying him. Four people, four people in the meeting said. Then came demand. Then came the demands: schedule an inauguration, declare a state of emergency, unblock government buildings. Mr. Kuchma icily addressed his former protege. You have become very brave, uh, Viktor Fyodorovich, uh, to speak to me in this manner, he said, uh, according to according to Mr. Bilokon and General Smeshko, it would be best for you to show this bravery on Independence Square. General Smeshko intervenes to offer the SPU's assessment of the situation warning the Premier that few of Ukraine's troops, if ordered, would fight the people. He also said that if soldiers followed an order, a crackdown would not succeed because demonstrators would resist. Then he challenged Mr. Yanukovych. Uh, Viktor Fyodorovich, if you are ready for a state of emergency, you can give this order, he said. Here is Belokin, he continued, the head of the M MVD. You will be giving him, as chairman of the government, a written order to unblock the buildings. Will you do this? Mr. Yanukovych was silent. General Smeshko waited. You've answered, he said, according to the people in the meeting. You will not do, <laughs> you will not do it. Let us not speak this nonsense. There is, no there is no sense in using force. Mr. Kuchma left the, left the room to take a phone call, then returned with a state television crew. Mr. Yanukovych slammed down his pen and left. Um, and this is just a final bit to the article that um, I, I, I quite liked. Um, so taking us back to the start of this, which is the call to stand down um, that, that was sent by the SVU. Um, while all sides press for information and advantage, uh, a group of security and Miss Timoshenko, that's uh, Yulia Timoshenko, who was the you know kind of prime minister of Ukraine a few times, is kind of seen in the bucket with y Yanukovych and Yushchenko as kind of the three three key you know key leaders of Ukraine during this time, uh, political leaders at least. Miss um, Miss. Uh, Timoshenko met at the headquarters of the military intelligence service, uh, the GUR. According to them, uh, Mr. Galako, the GUR chief, General Dris Driskani, Colonel Kon Kondratyuk, and General Romanchenko, who, who said, called the SBU, heads SBU headquarters for instruction. Uh, Chairman 
Shmeshko told me to call General told me to call General Popkov and find out why the alert had been called, he said. Um we should note here that General Romanchenko in this article is always the one that speaks to the author. Um and this this is the one we suspect is is villain. Um so just to carry on from that. Um, a, an extraordinary exchange followed. The counterintelligence chief called the troop commander, who he had known for years, and asked what were the grounds for the alert. He said it was his decision. General Romanchenko said, I said to General Popkov that he had to have a written order to raise troops on full alert, and since he did not have this order, he would have to call back the troops. Simultaneously, from his office at the SBU headquarters, General Smeshko called Mr. Belokin, who's uh, the MVB, MVD chief. The uh, MVD are internal ministries uh, chief. So, like, um, I don't know. I guess not really like a count. Yeah, I guess maybe like they're attached to the ministry of the interior as i guess as opposed to being part of the intelligence services um so simultaneously from his office um the S at the sbu headquarters general smeshko called mr belokin who sought assurances the opposition would not seize buildings both men said general smeshko called him back and gave him that assurance shifting responsibility to himself if the buildings were overrun. Other officers said that after an hour, Colonel General Alexander Petruk, the Army Chief of Staff, arrived at the Military Intelligence Service's office. The intelligence officer pressed him for help. He said that the Army would not deploy inside of Ukraine. He said that it would not be done, Colonel Kondratrik. Kondratyuk said General Petruk's staff did not return phone messages seeking an interview. Miss Timoshenko said she watched with amazement as the uh, Siloviki and then General Petruk made calls and warned the Interior Ministry that they are on the side of the people and will defend the people and that the MVD will have to deal not only with unarmed people and youth if it comes to Kiev, but with the army, with the army and special forces inside the intelligence agencies. Ms. Timoshenko said she witnessed a turning point. Once the uh, Siloviki thwarted the alarm, the administration learned that it did not have sole influence over the last guarantor of power, the men with guns. After a peaceful uprising in Georgia in 2003, deposed um, President uh, Eduard Shevardnadze um, in part with the help with help from the authorities, she said she was envious of a country with officers willing to resist corrupt power. Here's a quote from her: "I'd always thought that all of our generals were very loyal to Mr." to Mr. Kuchma and were very pragmatic, she said. 
all of a sudden I made this discovery. We had generals on the side of the people. Yeah, it's also interesting to note, too, that um, uh, General Nikolaus Krosi, uh, the American, uh, Ukrainian-American general who was dispatched over there to help um, reform Ukraine's armed forces during the 90s, uh, was later also credited with the, um, I don't know, quote-unquote, democratic legacy of the armed forces of Ukraine uh, and not intervening or the uh, de uh, democratic uh, drive of the armed forces in Ukraine and not intervening in the Orange Revolution. Uh, yeah, but this is one of the reasons why we um, in the United States cultivate these military exchange programs and love sending advisors and stuff over. It's a um, good way to cultivate figures within the militaries of other countries to ensure compliance if a certain situation comes up i.e. a coup where uh, we want them to behave in a certain way so yeah again it's important to emphasize that the armed forces of ukraine had uh, just undergone a major transformation organized by a american army general prior to this all right, folks, as it often happens with uh, this series and the concurrent and closely related Patriot Games one, this ended up being quite a lengthy conversation with all kinds of fascinating information that came out. So I'm going to pause now and let you guys digest it, and we will be back here in a week or two for the conclusion, which will be part eight of the Far West franchise that will... Uh, bring the activities in Ukraine up to about 2008 to a conclusion and will provide us with a fantastic spring springboard into the horrendous activities that have unfolded over the last 15 years or so. Uh, you guys uh, do not want to miss this. On that note, I say to you folks, as always, good night and good luck to you all.
does devil with me Come on and ride I does devil with me Come on and ride I does devil with me Come on and ride I does devil with me Pelting with small stones carried away No destination nobody can see Maybe to the mountains, maybe to the sea, maybe to the moon, dear, just you and me.